morning, we're looking at Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about the way of right motive. Now, two things um, I'm going to share uh, that are distractions for me, but I need to put it on the table. One is I would have had some photos of this event that I'm about to tell you about sent to Angie, but my computer decided to be funny this morning. Actually, my monitor just decided it would quit. So um, so just going to have to trust me on this. You can look. No, don't look it up right now. Don't do that. Just write down the date, and I'll tell you about it. Um, but on the night of September the 3rd, 1951, oh, to have been in Venice, Italy on that night, because... On this night, an eccentric millionaire art collector by the name of Charles D. Bestigue, I'd probably kill his name, uh, often referred to as the Count of Monte Cristo, um, he had what was considered to be, to this day, the party of the century. It was called La Balle Oriental. In his Venetian palace, right there on the, on the main uh, uh, lagoon pathway in Venice, in 1951, he hosted what he labeled and what later was described as the party of the century. Thousands of guests were invited. And the photos that verify this, this gathering is really quite something. If you've ever seen the main canal in Venice... It was literally lined from one side to the other with boats waiting and hoping that they might be able to be admitted into this party. Um, some arrived by yacht, uh, waiting in the Lido, hoping that they might be able to get some way in. The party is said to have uh, launched the career of Pierre Cardin, uh, who, who designed 30 of the costumes, and everybody who was anybody, Salvador Dali, Christian Dior, Orson Welles, princes, princesses, um, all kinds of rulers from around the world came to this party. The host of the party wore a scarlet robe, long curling wig. His normal height, five foot six, was raised by 16-inch platform shoes. It was a party of all parties. A masquerade party that made the cover of Life magazine. It's a fascinating thing. Now, the interesting part about this whole extravaganza was the amount of time and effort, and this is what I would have loved to be able to show you, is that they went to all of this effort, hired all kinds of designers to make gowns that looked like they were 100 years prior, and yet they all wore masks. A masquerade party. Princes, rulers, uh, you know, all of the, all of the, the A-listers around the world were at this gathering. And, and what's fascinating about this party of the century is that it will be remembered for its masks and its costumes, but some of the people who attended will actually never know. But isn't that the point of a masquerade? One of the musicals that took the stage almost 40 years ago has a, an anthem in that musical 
that is speaks to this idea of the masquerade ball in the phantom of the opera the words go something like this masquerade paper faces on parade hide your face so the world will never find you every face a different shade look around there's another mask behind you face of mauve spash of Poose, fool and king, ghoul and goose, green and black, queen and priest, trace of rouge, face of beast. Faces. Take your turn. Take a ride on the merry-go-round in an inhuman race. Eye of gold, thigh of blue, true is false, who is who? Swirling of gown, ace of hearts, face of clown, faces. Drink it in, drink it up, till you've drowned in the light, in the sound, but... Who can name the face? Grinning yellows, spinning reds. Take in your fill. Let the spectacles astound you. Burning glances, turning heads. Stop, stare. A sea of smiles all around you. Seething shadows, breathing lies. You can fool any friend who ever knew you. Masquerade. Run and hide. But a face will still pursue you. Masquerade. Stop and stare at the sea of smiles. But isn't that kind of the point? You see, we don't need the party of the century to be reminded that one of the first impulses that many of us learn is how to wear a mask, how to hide. I forgot to bring with me, babe, a mask. <laughs> she has one that we actually brought from Venice. I was going to wear I was going to at least put it up. Um, but see, when we speak to this idea, we can look at that and say, oh, isn't that ridiculous? But see, we all like to dress up, don't we? Interesting, Halloween, the thing that it's become, isn't it? And not just that day. What about the multi-billion dollar fashion and makeup industry promising what it can never deliver, a modern mask? Nobody will really know. Forty years ago, a young, insecure pastor being told, you need to dress the part or people won't take you seriously. Suit, tie, briefcase in hand, degrees on the wall, but does anybody know what's actually going on inside me? Now, no one does that today, right? Because all that we need to do is curate our image on social media. See, truth be told, we don't have to travel to Venice. We don't have to travel back in time. The truth is, we all live with this propensity to want to manage what we look like. Hide your face so the world will never find you. What a chilling line. 
But wait a minute, you know, the party started long before that, didn't it? I mean, let's, let's put our, our, our Bible cap on for a moment. When did this party actually begin? Well, oh, wait, it started in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, when they chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they saw their nakedness and they felt ashamed. And in their shame, they felt their lack. And they ran and they hid in an attempt to, watch this, cover and to control. And that game just hasn't stopped. I mean, what will, what will God do if he actually sees me? God who makes man as his image bearers, what will he do if he's confronted with weakness and failure in man? What, what will he do? So Adam and Eve go to the ball. They put on a mask to cover their shame. And watch this. This is, please follow this. It is exactly what many of us have done. They put on this mask to cover their shame, and they made God their enemy and judge. They made God their enemy and judge. And they listened to the illusion. They lived with this illusion that they could cover their own shame and control what would happen. Fear and shame drives them to pretend. Fear and shame are the tools of hell to hide the revelation of heaven. Started in a masquerade ball in the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve are attending this masquerade party. Where, where was God? Let's locate him. God goes to them. This is a very important theological point. You will hear me repeat early and often, but one that we need to repeat early and often. God came to them and said, where are you? Not because God doesn't know where man is. He doesn't need to locate man. He already knows where they're at. It's because man has located God somewhere else in the midst of their fear and shame. Where are you? You see, it's here that we begin to encounter what it means to live with purity of heart and with the right motive. You see, uh, if, if you're like me, perhaps you've been like me when you read Matthew 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Man, Jesus is commending the person who has an absence of wrongdoing, who've really got their act together, then they can actually see God. But, beloved, when, when I look at the scriptural testimony, and when I begin to consider this reality that that invitation is a failed attempt, 
It's, it's, it's a masquerade party. See, th- that invitation is a failed attempt when we try to make ourselves pure by ourselves. Not only is it impossible, but it is opposed to the revelation of what the gospel actually says. Here's the profound truth of the original masquerade party. Plain as day. I'll likely need to repeat this, okay? Uh, Not because I consider you slow, but because I think it's important. Ready? Sin did not remove God. He comes to man. Sin did not remove God from Adam and Eve. See, here's the truth of the gospel. God removes sin. Sin does not separate God from man. God came to separate us from sin and give us life. Okay? Many of us have heard a wording that has left us believing in the masquerade party. Oh, look at me. I've got to fix this. God came to man. Where are you? He came to invite us back into a world absent of the mask of cover and control and into the secure place of love. So that once again, we could occupy our original job description. Image bearers, capable of seeing God now in the face of the stranger and the needy and the broken, the orphan and the widow. Jesus actually said that, right? These are Jesus' words, right? They're the words in red. You'll actually see me in the prisoner. Not the person who gets it all together. The person who needs a cup of coffee. You'll see me. Am I given Bible verses, right? I'm given scripture. Come on. Yes? All right. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Beloved, that's good news. See, we all, what I, the point I've been trying to make this morning is that we all had this temptation to join the masquerade party and wear a mask. It's, it's, I think it's an instinctive impulse. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Here's an interesting thing. Watch this. We can even choose to wear a mask. This one's an interesting one. Of having the right information as a means of controlling my life. Now, what does that sound? What does that look like? Well, I'm, I'm talking about having the right, uh, right truth and using it as a weapon to control life around me, or to control my life, it's still a mask. What what are you talking about, Pastor? I'm talking about the pastor who has all the information memorized in his head, but still hasn't opened his heart in vulnerability to the truth of grace and his need of God's presence in his life. And you see that shipwreck one after another. Hear what I'm trying to say. Just knowing the right truth doesn't Bring repair to the heart. You've got to open your heart and uncover your heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? So I was meditating on this. I I told Nisa, I I wrote this message twice. (laughs) The first version is in the 
dustbin, I guess they call it in England. Um, but I woke up early, early yesterday morning because the thing burning on my heart was this. So think about the life of Jesus as it's recorded in the Gospels. Now, he knows the truth. Think about his life. Now, okay, he's, he's living, coming as, as God with us to begin this new reality, the kingdom of God upon the earth, and to rescue man. And in the midst of all of this, he knows that he's fulfilling the prophetic promises, that he'll be the, the coming king. And yet, he's got himself surrounded by a handful of hand-picked folk. I said that wrong. Hand-picked folk. Um, and he knows who's going to betray him. He knows who will deny him. He knows who's going to kill him. And he never uses that truth as a power lever. Purity of heart, listen to what I'm trying to say right now, is not the absence of wrongdoing or having the correct answers to questions. Purity of heart, beloved, is about the right motive of living in wholehearted surrender that the love of the Father is what is needed the most. It's about the right motive. Jesus, you knew this was going to happen. Why didn't you do something? He did. He opened his arms in self-giving love and forgiveness and invites us to do the same. This is image-bearing. Not having the right answers to argue my opponent into the ground, but actually reflecting the heart of the Father. It's about having the right motive, love or control. So I'm meditating this passage, and I was thinking about the specific person that was coming to my mind is Peter. I was thinking about Peter's life. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into several different passages, but just thinking about the, the very end of Jesus' life as it's recorded in the Gospels. And in, in Peter, he's trying to make sense of Jesus. Matthew 16. Um, really cool moment. Hey, guys, who do you think I am? Peter's like, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, that's amazing. Flesh and blood. Uh, you, 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 you've got the right revelation that's come from the Father. This is awesome. Flesh and blood didn't give you this revelation, but my Father who's in heaven on the rock of this confession, I'm going to build my church. Great job. Peter's got the right conclusion. He's the Christ who's come to reveal another kingdom. Yes. A couple verses later, Peter is rebuking Jesus. I'm not kidding. It's just a few verses later. Jesus, um, if you hadn't, remember, I got revelation from the Father. You're not dying. Let's quit talking about this. John records Jesus is washing the disciples' feet in John 13. 
And he comes to Peter. Peter says, uh-uh, no, 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 no. You're not doing that to me. And shortly thereafter, Jesus says, hey, by the way, Peter, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times. Not once, not twice, three times. So the more that Peter powers up, I've got some revelation. Jesus, let's, let's go do this. In Matthew 16, according to Matthew, he's, Jesus calls him Satan. <laughs> you, what are you doing? And in, uh, in John 13, he fails, he's, you know, you're going to deny me, and he fails him miserably. Then we get down to Peter walking with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's about to be arrested. And Peter turns, according to Luke, verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 49. At least he asked the question, shall we strike him with the sword? At least he asked. And Jesus, you know, he takes a swing, takes off the ear of Malchus. Jesus says, stop. So Peter has the right truth powered with the wrong motive. Do you see this? Control. Surely, Jesus, you want to control stuff, right? Not that we've ever done that in the church. And then let me just point out something here that's obvious, okay? Peter is revealing what happens to all of us. He's revealing what he's rehearsed in his heart. Beloved, what you have rehearsed will come out of you, okay? Can I just say that really? What's in you will come out of you. It matters what's in me. I can put up a mask, but it's going to come out of me. So Peter's sitting here, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure this out. I want to force, this is true. What's true must be, I, I must, I've, got to, I've got to make this happen. And it ends poorly every time. Exactly, Peter, because force and control isn't how the kingdom is going to be ruled and lived out. It's going to be lived out of surrendering to the love of the Father. And I, as I implied here a minute ago, you know, church history filled with loads of examples of having the right truth empowered with the wrong motive, bringing untold amounts of harm. Truth can actually be a weapon if the motive is power and control, not love. So that, you can write that one down and take it to the bank, Okay. Cover, control, beloved, they're completely opposed to love. Jesus comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And he stretches out his arms and gives his life. See, the fascinating reality of Jesus' leadership in Peter's life, this is what's also interesting. He's never off put with Peter and the truth that Jesus knows he doesn't come at him, and there's no gotcha. Aha, see, Peter? So can I just speak a word of grace over all of us? You know, you think about Peter's denial. Think about the places he's messed up. 
And, oh, beloved, you know, I, I went through a season of my journey where it's like, you know, we're going to be really, we're going to really emphasize the importance of accountability with one another. We're going to hold each other accountable. Um, it's important to invite each other to walk in truth, but it's really important to love one another. And how I've seen this used as a means of not loving. Um, and so I see Jesus, right? Remember, then it doesn't end there. Peter denies him. Jesus looks at him, goes to the cross. When Jesus resurrects and Peter comes out there, he's fishing and he finds Jesus. And Jesus invites him back to love. He says, love, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? So here's, here's what I want you to hear. Denial and failure is not what defined Peter. The love of the Father to find Peter. So can I proclaim this in the name of Jesus? Other people have said it, but we ought to be, we as Jesus followers should be able to proclaim this clearly to each other. Your worst mistake isn't what defines you. It's the grace of God. So Jesus invites Peter towards love. And then... Peter, as an old man, begins to share some conclusions. I, I denied him. I rebuked him. I got called Satan. <laughs> I did some pretty wild stuff. And this is what he says as an old man, 1 Peter 1, verses 21 to 25. I'm going to read this out of the voice translation. For you were called to this kind of life, as Isaiah said. He did no wrong deed, no evil came from his mouth. The anointed one, he's referring to Jesus, suffered for us and left us an example so that we should follow in his steps. When he was verbally abused, he didn't return the abuse. When he suffered, he didn't make threats to cause suffering in return. Instead, he entrusted all would be put right by the one who judges justly. He entrusted himself to the Father. Okay, that's, that's a critical verse. Jesus trusted the Father's heart. Okay? How do I live from the right motive? That's the definition. Trusting the love of the Father over everything. He took our sins in his body when he died on the cross so that we, being dead to sin, can live for righteousness, as the Scripture said, through his wounds, we are healed. For there was a time when you were like sheep and that wandered from the field, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your lives. Peter comes to this point in his life, he's like, oh, wait a minute. That's what you were doing. You are trusting the heart of the Father, and that's what you're inviting us to do is the same. Yes. Beloved Friday was the Feast of Epiphany. It's a really cool tradition of the church. Here's what, the, what it means. It's a celebration of the revelation of Jesus in the world, specifically to the Gentiles, right? You've got these magi, and there's, we don't have a lot of information about them. Some say they might have been sorcerers, all kinds of weird stuff, but they get revelation, and suddenly they're worshiping Jesus. Whoa, awesome. I have lived long enough now in the church and participated in all kinds of expressions of revealing Christ, at least that we thought we were, in the Jesus movement, in a parade that 
marched down the streets of Colorado Springs in 30 years ago or so, marching through the streets of our city. I've been in stadium events literally around the world. I've participated in silent protests on the steps of the Supreme Court in Washington. And I, I don't want to diss any of that, but let me just say this right now. My conclusion, the appearing of Christ is not about a public announcement as much as it is about the posture of my heart. I am becoming more and more and more convinced. Blessed are the pure in heart. They see God. They're living with this open-handed trust that the revelation of Christ. So, so Mark Scandrett invites us that, you know, blessed are the pure in heart. So we're holding up our hands as a posture of saying it's open-handed. I'm not here to control something. That the promised epiphany is that as I surrender to the love of the Father, that the love of the Father can be seen in me, and I can see God's activity. Love at work in my life is more powerful testimony than any of my collective strength or wisdom. So, laying aside my masks and trusting the love of God revealed in my life is enough. It means, you know, it, it, to, to choose that, it means that I, I also need to be honest about the fact that there's a control freak in me. Ask my wife, she'll tell you it's true. Um, see, we all love that illusion of control. And we just need to get honest about it. Like, oh, yeah, you wear a mask. See those people who wear a mask? Yeah, we all do. This is what surrender looks like. Lord, I, I'm trusting that the posture of the cross that was enough for us is enough for me. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. When we trust the power of love to reveal heaven more than our collective power and strength. So as I, let, me, let me point to one quick thing and then I'll wrap up here. But Matthew 6 after Jesus gives the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, by the way, he didn't give it in chapters and verses. You know, he's just talking. But something that he goes into in the Sermon on the Mount, really interesting. He says, by the way, your acts of righteousness that Jewish people would have understood because it's called their, their uh, zedekah, uh, your acts of righteousness, don't do that to be seen. Don't let that become a mask. So when you pray, when you fast, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. This is, about, this is not about other people. It's about posturing and living from a place that allows you to treasure what God treasures and to value what he values. And, and guess what? Where you're going to see God, I want to come back to that, is when my, my heart is surrendered and I'm saying, Lord, you're... Your love was enough for me, and I want to live from that posture of agreement with Jesus, and I can begin to see the face of God in the poor, in the widow, in the orphan. And I can begin to see the truth of the gospel that no matter how treacherous it feels like out there or in here in my life, 
the gospel proclaims that that mess, my own one, the mess that's out there, isn't it messy? Yeah, it is. It does not separate God from man. God came to separate us from sin and give us life. And he keeps coming. And he invites us into a world that, that oh, that we might be able to lay down our masks of cover and control and surrender into the secure arms of love so that once again, today, the 8th, right? Yes, January 8th. I have it on the bottom of my notes. I should look down there. January 8th, I could occupy my original job description as an image bearer and that I might be able to see the face of Jesus in the stranger, in the hurting, in the poor, in the needy. Blessed are the pure in heart. That I could see the hand of God in the world around me. Beloved, that is good news. Amen? I want to invite you guys to close this morning with me in praying this simple prayer together. Would you guys stand up? And we're going to close in sharing a communion. So those of you who are on the call, we're going to invite you to grab something there if you uh, have it. And, uh, I mean, obviously, just go grab something. <laughs> going to give you a minute here. All right. Um, let's pray this prayer together. O God of light and peace, whose glory shining in the child of Bethlehem still draws the nations to yourself. Dispel the darkness that shrouds our path, that we may come to kneel before Christ in true worship. Offer him our hearts and peace, souls, and return from his presence to live as he taught. Amen and amen.